settlers on Sunday, which led to homes being set alight and the death of one Palestinian. It was sparked by the killing of two Israelis. Ned Price is the U.S. State Department spokesman. These comments were irresponsible. They were repugnant. They were disgusting. And just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that also amount to incitement to violence. We call on Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly and clearly reject and disavow these comments. The head of the World Health Organization has urged the international community to do more to help earthquake hit northwest Syria during his first visit to rebel-held areas of the country. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said more funds were needed to assist the victims. He was speaking after visiting a hospital in the area where more than 4,000 people are known to have died. The depth of suffering of the Syrian people is difficult to convey. I have already been so disturbed and heartbroken. The earthquake that struck more than three weeks ago adds an imaginable suffering to people who have already suffered so much over 12 years of war, economic collapse, the COVID-19 pandemic and an ongoing cholera outbreak. And analysis of last year's NASA mission to smash a spacecraft into an asteroid shows that the project to redirect its trajectory was more successful than expected. Time-lapse video reveals that when the golf cart-sized probe named DART travelling at 6 kilometres a second collided with the pyramid-sized asteroid, it caused the rock to speed up its orbit four times more than predicted. The impact shot a 1,000 tonnes of rubble into space. Scientists say this, rather than the collision, caused the big change in trajectory. The news from RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Money Talk. Good morning. It's 8.05 in Hong Kong on the 2nd of March, and this is Money Talk. I'm Andrew Work, still carrying that name that is your favorite four-letter word. The big news is the economic data coming out of China, and it is much better than anyone expected. Manufacturing, consumption, and more are all looking good. The Hang Seng Index rose 4% on the news, with mainland property and tech stocks leading the charge. More on that later in the show. European data showed inflation up in Germany, Spain, and France, and housing prices down in the UK. Musk mania is ratcheting up for his third master plan, which is being unveiled live right now in Austin, Texas. The focus is expected to be on the energy business, and we've been hearing about superchargers and battery megapacks. But as we got on air, participants at the show were wondering, where's the beef? News about cheaper Teslas uh, may still be on the list. But you know what's not cheap? Aston Martin's sweet, sweet rides. Their stock is up 14% on an announcement that it will return to profitable status in 2023, buoyed by products like the sold-out DBS 770 Ultimate. Revolut! The OG of digital banks claims it will finally be profitable to the tune of almost 60 million pounds in 2023, marking a huge shift in momentum. Profits were lifted by a 30% rise in revenues. Denmark canceled a public holiday to raise 430 million US dollars it plans to spend on its military. Many Danes were not feeling the higa. The great Hong Kong airline ticket giveaway kicked off yesterday with people living in Southeast Asia able to apply for tickets. Taiwan is just giving away cash to get tourists back. 
We're going to be looking at all the big issues on today's show. We've got great guests, uh, including Enzio Von File, wealth investment strategist, and Nick Morrow, who's the lead for global trade and an analyst, Asia and Access China with the Economist Intelligence Unit. Later, taking a look at your money, Carolyn Wright speaks to financial healing advocate Kylie Chan about the importance of financial health for your mental health. And finally, with a view from Taiwan, we'll have Ross Feingold, Business Development Director, SafePro Group. If you have questions for our guests, fire them into our email, moneytalk at rthk.hk. And if you want to share your views on the, mac the macro or the micro or the new format of the show, get on our Facebook page at Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Like the lady on the airplane says, brace, brace, brace for impact with Money Talk. Okay, let's get into the markets. And some of the headlines before that, China released a slew of data yesterday, and it's not bad at all. The Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index rose to 52.6 in February, the highest since April 2012. This sentiment reflected action. The manufacturing sector saw its biggest improvement in activity in more than a decade in February. Consumer activity is climbing, and housing sales rose for the first time in 20 months, according to the 100 biggest real estate developers. Growth is expected to beat 5% this year and could climb as high as 5.5%, much better than last year's and mimic 3%, uh, the second slowest pace since the 1970s. Looking at Europe, inflation numbers are up, and it is going up in Germany, France, and Spain, and we are going to be watching for the European Central Bank's reaction to that. In the U.S., Susan Schmidt, the head of the public equity at the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, says concern over the Fed having to continue increasing interest rates and inflation is hurting market optimism. Importantly, we're hearing... Companies come out and management teams talk about their concerns for the coming months on how they're starting to see a cooling of uh, consumer demand, potentially, or importantly, talking about how it's more expensive to operate their business. Looking at the UK, collapsing British house prices are seen in some quarters as, as a sign that high interest rates are having their intended effect. This raises the question of whether or not a similar effect will be seen in other markets soon, and we'll uh, get into that with our guests today. And like Oprah says, you get a ticket, you get a ticket, and you get a ticket. People living in Southeast Asia are the first to live in the world of winners and are applying for free-ish tickets to come and say, hello, Hong Kong. Cathay, Air uh, Cathay uh, Pacific Airlines, Hong Kong Airlines, and Greater Bay Airlines are issuing tickets on a variety of starting days, depending on which country you live in. Cathay gave away over 17,000 tickets in the first 45 minutes of ops in Thailand and then closed shop out of tickets. April is mainland China's turn, and then the rest of the world follows in May. And why do I say free-ish tickets? Users still have to pay the taxes and surcharges, which can add up. Also, they can't upgrade their status or give the tickets to others. They have to stay in Hong Kong for a minimum of two days and a maximum of seven days. So some conditions apply. In the United States, a panel of lawmakers have passed a bill that would clear the way for President Joe Biden to ban TikTok completely in the country. The legislation requires the administration to impose penalties on companies that have given TikTok user data to those with links to Beijing. TikTok, which is owned by ByteDance, is under scrutiny in multiple countries over privacy and surveillance concerns. The bill is expected to go to the Republican-controlled House before going to the Senate. Amy Celico of Albright Stonebridge Group, a part of the Denton's Global Advisors, says she isn't convinced a ban will finally be enacted. There are members of both the Democratic and Republican Party in the U.S. that are concerned uh, about the, um, the potential surveillance 
capabilities of TikTok and of course uh, user privacy. And so that is going to continue to be a recurring theme here in Washington where I sit. I don't think that means there is going to be uh, legislation passed that will ban the app uh, from use across the country. Musk Mania, as I said, is at full throttle in Austin. The share price has jumped from its two-year lows to put Musk on the back of some of the uh, top of the billionaire lists. And as the show came to air, the firm was talking up renewables, including their supercharging stations. The investor day is when they usually announce plans for the future. And just yesterday, Mexico's president said Tesla would build a, quote, very big factory in the country. The people that are there right now uh, haven't heard news of it, and they have noticed uh, we're, we're looking, it's going to be mostly green news. Bill Russo, chief executive and founder of consulting firm Automobility, says green will be the theme. He's targeting that, uh, the messaging today around sustainability. Um, obviously, Tesla being an electric vehicle uh, manufacturer, that's always been one of their uh, value propositions, is selling the idea of a more sustainable mobility uh, propulsion a device, uh, but I think the other uh, aspect of this is how to how do I democratize the affordability of electric vehicles, as well as provide for the energy storage and the capacity needed to scale uh, the infrastructure around energy solutions. Okay, from the headlines to the markets, uh, hello Hong Kong, hello America. But frankly, it was a pretty weak day for the big U.S. indices. The Dow Jones was flat, while the S&P and NASDAQ dropped about half a percent and almost 0.7% respectively, if not uh, respectively, if not respectively. The Rust 2K barely stayed in positive territory. The Toronto Stock Exchange was the continental winner, up 0.2% with energy and mining stocks topping the charts. In Europe, stocks were mostly down, with the stock 600 dropping 0.7%, the DAX down 0.4%, and the CAC and Italian FTSE dropping around half a percent each. The British FTSE was the opposite, rising half a percent, with mining connected stocks like Weir Group, Rio Tinto, Glencore, Endeavor, uh, Antofagasta, and Anglo-American leading the best performers. In Asia, the Hang Seng Index was taking no prisoners with a mighty world-leading 4.2% jump. Real, real estate and tech stocks were popping, mitigating over 8% on good news. Long for both country garden companies, Sunny Optical, NetEase, and Alibaba Health all beat a lucky 8% with Tencent and Baidu almost there. Even nine of the 10 worst performers on the Hang Seng Index were still up on the day, mostly local utilities and infrastructure. Shenzhen and Shanghai were both up over 1% on the Nikkei 225 at slight gains as the Australian Stock Exchange shed a sliver. The Kospi had the day off for Independence from Japan Day. Uh, looking at commodities, oil is up almost a percent, with Brent crude better up 1.1% to $84 and change. Natural gas was up another 2.5%, hitting uh, US $2.80 MMBTU, up from just $2 on February 20th. Silver was flat as gold, palladium, and, plat uh, and platinum all gained. Copper was hot, rising almost 2%. U.S. 10-year Treasury bond yields hit 4% briefly, while one-year yields climbed up to over 5%. The U.S. dollar lost ground to the British pound, the euro, Swiss franc, and the Canadian loonie. Now, that being said, the loonie had a terrible February against the U.S. dollar, but makes it a great month for all of you paying off your kids' tuition and residence and Canadian universities and your mortgages on your chalets and Whistler. The Japanese yen, the yuan, and the Singapore and Aussie dollars are all up on the Yankee bucks. Uh, 
cracking on crypto. Bitcoin is up uh, over a percent in 24-hour trading to $23,466. Ethereum, better, up 1.7%. Cardano is up almost 2%. And Polygon is clawing some darkness from the light, up over 2% yesterday off a weak week. Looking around the region, uh, looks like the Australian Stock Exchange is on its way up. And we'll be checking in on some of those markets uh, later on. Hong Kong may shed some of yesterday's gains with a potential 0.8% loss for the Hang Seng if the futures index has the tea leaves right. And those are your markets on Money Talk. All right, time to get the big brains on the show, starting with Enzio Von Fio, wealth investment strategist. Enzio, welcome back. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. We've also got Nick Morrow, lead for global trade. Uh, he's an analyst, Asia and Access China at uh, my former employer in the 90s, the Economist Intelligence Unit. Good to have you on, Nick. Good morning. All right, guys. Uh, China was the big data uh, manufacturing purchase managers index, actual Actual manufacturing uh, also good, uh, maybe reflecting, you know, kind of driving that sentiment, uh, consumer activity, housing, all good. Uh, Enzio, what's your take on that? Well, two points. I don't think that China is a Lazarus. And what I mean by that is in the Bible, he's the guy who stands up suddenly after being dead and it's all wonderful and tickety-boo. I don't think that works so well in China, where the economy has been back on its back for three years. It must have shrunken by about 20%. It's something that we call the base effect in the trade, which is that if you're measuring numbers coming off a very low base, like 50, then you can't, it's very easy to come up with very large percentage gains. If, if the base is 100, the same 10% gives you a 10% gain. If the, 10, if the base is 50, you get a 20% gain. So based on that, these numbers are coming off very, very weak bases, and they all the glitters is not gold is all that I would say at this effect. I think you get the message. Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, are you are you in, okay? So maybe people are building it up to more than it is. Yeah. But is it is it a is it a permanent change in direction? Yes. I mean, directionally, I'm totally for the economic time and change are changing to an economic to to a um, an excess supply of money and an excess demand for goods, which is good for markets. I'm just cautioning, though, that the road uphill will be quite rocky and stony, and you don't all the glitters is not gold. Mm, Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I think a similar assessment from our side. Um, gen uh, definitely positive news. Um, so we saw a number of forecasting houses upgrade their forecasts um, as a result of the data. We've been expecting you know 5.7% growth this year. We upgraded a couple of weeks ago. Um, and now we're seeing other people kind of approach that same level. Um, and it is because of this this optimism and these, these signals. But just like Enzio said, um, achieving that growth of above 5%, even above 5.5%, that is going to be because a lot of the base effects that we saw last year. And we're expecting, I mean, this coming weekend is going to be the commencement of the Lianghui, the, uh, the two, uh, two, two sessions where we see the China's policy setting uh, for the year. Uh, we're expecting a real GDP growth target of around 5.5%, but that actually reflects a degree of 
caution uh, in the economic outlook because 5.5% is going to be relatively easy to hit given those base effects. Yeah, um, and so um, even with kind of the genuinely positive signals we're seeing in the economy, it's not a fully positive story. We're still seeing some regional divergence, for example. Um, but I mean, I think the optimism is going to still drive a lot of you know, interest in the market. I mean, 5.5%, we're, we're off of the, uh, I guess we're well off the days when they used to cook, you know, I'm not going to say they cooked the books, <laughs> but I guess I just did. Uh, you know, we would say 7.8% this year, 7.8% this year, you know, I mean, is, are those days gone? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I know some forecasting houses, I think Goldman, for example, um, is expecting growth of above 6%, um, whether it's slightly above 6%, whether it's high 5 mm. Five to six. Um, again, this year is going to be a little bit distorted because of those statistical base effects. Uh, but when we consider the outlook through the remainder of the 2020s, it's going to be a story of deceleration. Um, I think this kind of golden age of you know very very high Chinese growth is likely over, and that's very much a property sector story. We're seeing a property sector rebound in big cities like Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, Guangzhou, etc. But that's the tier one story. The, the the story for the property markets in tier three and tier four cities in particular looks pretty dire. Um, um, and considering that that's really been a major driver of economic growth in China for a long time, for, for you know decades, um, that's gone now. And, and that's going to be a big consideration when we think about the growth outlook for the remainder of the 2020s. Yeah. Enzio, sure. I, I agree with, with Nick. And I would just add to that that we always want to be careful, as I'm sure Nick and all of us are, with this false precision of these 5, 5.5, 7.8, because China does have 900 million farmers and I think it's a little bit tricky to get exact statistics off these poor souls living in the middle of the ditch somewhere out in the countryside. There was a fabulous book written by Scott Rosell from Stanford, Invisible China, which deals with this issue of the 900 million ur rural population. And that's always just worthwhile keeping in mind. Yeah, I know a lot of, I, I, I read about the uh, China Central Bank digital currency. I have to keep reminding people, 400 million people in China, never been on the internet, you know, <laughs> so they, they can't go, they can't go fully digital ever all the time because of that effect you're talking about. Um, uh, you know, Chinese property stocks popping yesterday uh, on the Hang Seng, I guess everywhere else uh, on the back of the news. But I mean, as, as Nick says, tier one, I mean, Enzio, how important is the property sector now? Oh, I, I, I'm not. I'm not a, 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 certainly not an expert on anything. Certainly not on property. But I, I, I mean, it, it used to be 30 percent of the economy, and I'm sure it's still a very major chunk of it. You don't just turn these things off like you just can't turn off the fireplace. Um, but uh, I think that the with the local government debt and with the with the debt problems mounting in China on a corporate and a local government level. I think that there are going to be some, some fairly squally winds coming up on that front. Mm, okay, so not out of the woods yet. No. Changing focus a little bit across the Pacific. I mean, we talked about Chinese manufacturing but uh, looking good, but American manu uh, and maybe it's good because of the base effect, but American manufacturing, not, not, as, uh, not, as, not as rosy. Uh, what is your guys' take on that? Is it, is it because they, they, didn't, they didn't crater out so they don't get a, a base effect boost? Or is there something else going on there? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, just to go back to China really, really quickly. Um, so the you know PMI that we saw in January was at a time when COVID was running still a little bit rampant, when Chinese New Year was happening, so factories were offline. Some of the rebound that we saw in February might just be because factories are coming back online, um, which you know isn't the full story, but it's partially the story. In the U.S., we don't have those dynamics. Um, instead, uh, there's still a pretty healthy degree of anxiety around the future direction of the economy. Um, I think what's been interesting is that consumer spending has remained pretty resilient. 
government, um, but that's raised a lot of fears around the future of you know the uh, the Federal Reserve and the interest rate hikes that need to bring down inflation and essentially cool the overheated economy. I, I feel a lot of the story around this exuberance and the activity um, is very much consumer driven. It hasn't necessarily filtered into what's happened on the production side of things. Um, and so when we consider kind of the overall kind of global manufacturing landscape, um, I think. Uh, the outlook is still very, very mixed. Um, we're seeing kind of conflicting signals coming out of Asia, for example, conflicting signals coming out of Europe, and now conflicting, conflicting signals coming out of uh, North America, too. Um, and so I'd say we probably still need a couple of months to finally get a, a sense of where this is all going to settle in terms of the dust. Um, but the outlook for the U.S. that we have is still one that is relatively pessimistic. We're expecting stagnation this year, and a lot of this is tied to what's happening with the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I mean, Enzio, for sure, Federal Reserve, I know you're going to have something to say on that. Yeah, I, f I fully agree with Nick that the economic time in America, contrary to China, keeps worsening. We've got an excess demand for money. They're beginning to tighten quantitatively only now, and uh, despite the rising rates, and an excess supply of goods. Um, and that's heralded by, by people like, highlighted by people like Walmart, after all, a pretty big retailer in the States, saying that they expect the second half of 23 to be a little bit dice here when it comes to inflation but inflation to, to consumption excuse me but inflation is getting stickier and i would just point out on that fact that it's a lot of this is because of what nick was alluding to is supply side charges in america like elsewhere a lot of people just don't want to work and because people don't want to work doing the medial stuff that we all did as students waiters and bartenders and all that um, the employers are loath to fire people because if things then do improve after the presidential elections 2024, for instance, then how are you going to hire these people back? So it's kind of stuck on a supply side thing, and that's going to keep inflation sticky. And I think that now that I'm looking at a Fed funds rate I have for a couple of years of 6%-ish or so, and that's going to really then then have lead to the stag, stagnation, next by stagflation, big deal um, in the U.S. economy. And I mean, I mean, America's the consumers have been surprisingly resilient. Uh, interesting piece out of the Economist today about the housing market in the U.S. saying essentially people that are people that have got their low uh, interest mortgages mm. locked in. They don't want to move. They're not going anywhere because mm. they don't want to have to, you know, re-up at a much higher rate. So that constricts uh, supply on the market. But for that restricted supply, mortgage brokers are once again getting creative about how they can effectively lower rates uh, for American buyers. And so the housing market has been peculiarly uh, resilient, which again, given the demand for housing, it all fires back into you know inflation. Yeah. It's it's the change in policy architecture, as Mohammed Al Aryan pointed out in the FT very very eloquently two days ago. And I really think it's that kind of structural change that people can go through the back door and still lower your mortgage rates despite despite the Fed funds being at four and a half ish percent now. Um, that people don't get fired, not because they're no good. It's just because I wanted, I don't want to lose you on the next round when it goes back up again. Yeah. Nick? Um, I have to admit, this isn't an area of expertise for me, despite being an American. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'll, I'll defer to Enzi on this. Well, I mean, okay, well, let, let's, uh, from America, let's have a look at Europe. Uh, you know, different things going on in different places. I, I guess the, U, the UK is starting to detach more and more. I mean, the big news was that we got inflation numbers from Germany, France, Spain. Uh, inflation accelerating there, which, you know, is going to make the euro not happy. Um, but in the UK... You know, the, their housing market, as opposed to the Americans, is, is really 
cratering. Uh, 0.5% month-on-month fall. Prices 3.7% lower than their peak in August. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, which one do you guys want to tackle first? Continental Europe, or do you want to tackle the UK and housing prices? Nick? I'll, I'll talk about Europe and I guess the UK as, as part of that, but from a, a broad perspective. Yeah. I think what you just said about kind of, I forget the word you actually used. Decoupling? But, uh, decoupling. The decoupling yeah. of the UK and the European economies, it, it is becoming a bit more evident. Um, when we think about our own kind of growth outlook for Europe and the UK, um, the outlook for Europe has actually improved um, based on where we were a couple of months ago. I think there was a lot of fears around, um, you know, a recession over the winter. Um, I think natural gas storage ended up proving a bit more resilient than people had expected. That's partially due to climate factors. Um, but again, the European outlook has moved slightly more positive away from essentially recession towards stagnation, which, you know, we're not, no one's yes. you know, celebrating all that much about that, but mm. it, it's better than what it could have been. By contrast, the UK economy, the outlook there still looks pretty bleak. Um, it's one of the few economies in Europe that we are expecting to fall into a full year recession um, in 2023. Um, and I think, you know, that is very much just a story around Brexit, really. Um, and I think, um, you know, with that, you know, as the backdrop, all the decisions around cost of living, the monetary rate, the monetary decisions, um, kind of dampening investment, private consumption, that's all feeding into it. Um, but it, it, it's kind of fascinating to see exactly that decoupling of the UK and the continental European economies. And that's something that's probably going to continue continue for um, quite some time. Yeah, Enzio? Yeah, again, I think the economic time in, in Europe, having lived there for so many years, also in the UK, is just pretty terrible. It's excess demand for money, excess supply of goods, and that's going to stay because structurally, again, the social welfare state has inhibits, the high tax rate inhibits entrepreneurship and people really wanting to make things happen. I mean, that's where America still, maybe in my day-to-days out in Oregon, New York, um, still has an, has an edge, um, but certainly not in Europe. And I think it frankly represents the biggest geopolitical risk in the world. Oof, okay, so that's a big one to watch out for. Guys, we've got about 30 seconds left. Uh, very quickly, are you, uh, I mean, Enzio, you're, you're advising people on where to put their money. Mm. Uh, are you telling people to play offense or defense right now? Are, they, are you picking up deals or are you uh, saying go with the safe stuff? I mean, we have this 5% one-year bond option now. But where are you? Raising? I think safe. But, I mean, you can also be prudent with places like China where the economic time is definitely improving. The trend is my friend kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But just don't go into these gizmo things that are going to make you a hot buck within two days. It it just doesn't work that way. People are not traders. Traders used to be my best clients. So I think it's China. I'm very leery on the U.S. because I think there's going to be some big thumping crash coming out of some corner that nobody knows in in this funny, phony financial system of theirs. Mm, okay, uh, we're gonna we're gonna take it there, Nick. You're you're not advising clients, so I'm not gonna put you in that same hot seat. But I <laughs> thank am, you. I am gonna thank you for coming on the show thank today. You. That's Nick Morrow, lead for global trade and analysts Asia and Access China at the Economist Intelligence Unit. First time I've been on the show with him. Uh, and also thanks to Enzio von Feil, our wealth investment strategist and a show regular. Quick check on the region. We'd like to give you a little update. Uh, all of our my my indices are up. Uh, the Nikkei two two five up. Kospi up. ASX two hundred is up. Quick update from the Tesla Investor Day. Uh, I was kind of leading with where's the Mexico plant? They have announced they will be breaking ground on a plant in Monterey, so that'll make the president happy. And also they're going to be opening a lithium factory in Texas, moving upstream. Uh, Still to come in Your Money, Carolyn Wright speaks to Kylie Chan about the importance of financial help for your mental health. And Ross Feinkold of the Safe Pro Group is going to bring us the view from Taiwan. Quick hit on the weather. Fine, during, dry during the day. 
Uh, with uh, ten maximum temperature of around 23 degrees. Right now, it's 18 degrees Celsius and 81% humidity on RTHK3 and Money Talk. And now the news. A school principal says an air of normality returned to campus yesterday as Hong Kong enjoyed its first day without a mask mandate in two and a half years. Dion Chen, who heads Yinghua College and chairs the Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council, said he observed that most pupils wore masks to travel but took them off in school. He said the lack of masks and the end of the mandatory daily rapid tests made things feel more normal. He said the community as a whole learnt a lot about personal hygiene and resilience from the three-year pandemic. Personal hygiene definitely like raised the students and also everyone of us awareness in it. So uh, second thing, if we talk about learning side, I believe that everyone of us like the IT skills certainly enhanced a lot because like, during the online lessons we had to use various like you know, software apps, devices and so on and so forth. But like if talking about the personal characters, I think learning about how to deal with the difficulties or adversities, the resilience level of everyone of us also enhanced. The central government has lashed out at a new U.S. congressional committee dedicated to countering China. It wants committee members to ditch their ideological bias and zero-sum Cold War mentality. Wendy Wong has more details. Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning says the House-elect committee on the Communist Party must view China and China-U.S. relations in an objective and rational light. The spokeswoman says the committee must stop framing China as a threat by using this information and stop trying to score political points at the expense of bilateral relations. On the controversy involving TikTok, Ms Mao says a ban on its use by official European Union institutions will harm business confidence in Europe. The European Parliament, the European Commission and the EU Council have banned the video sharing app from being installed on official devices. Ms Mao says the move unreasonably suppressed other countries' companies on the grounds of national security and called on the EU to provide an open and non-discriminatory business environment for all firms. Greece's Prime Minister has blamed what he called tragic human error for being the main cause of the country's worst rail disaster. Kyriakos Mitsotakis had earlier visited the site of Tuesday's head-on collision between two trains, one a passenger service, the other carrying freight. At least 43 people died, many of them young adults. Local media allege that a local station master who's been charged with manslaughter by negligence has acknowledged mistakenly routing a train on the wrong track. The government's transport minister has resigned and visibly shaken said there would be an investigation. We will investigate with absolute graveness and transparency the cause of this tragic accident. But whatever we say now, it will be premature, and I would advise that by doing so, we will dishonour those who are missing. So, I would like all of us to calm down and to stick to what I previously said, that we will do everything to investigate the cause and leave nothing unanswered. The U.S. State Department has denounced comments by Israel's far-right finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, who'd called for the Palestinian village of Huwara to be wiped out. The village in the occupied West Bank was the site of a rampage by Israeli settlers on Sunday, which led to homes being set alight and the death of one Palestinian. It was sparked by the killing of two Israelis. Ned Price is the U.S. State Department spokesman. These comments were irresponsible. They were repugnant. They were disgusting. And just as we condemn Palestinian incitement to violence, uh, we condemn these provocative remarks that 
also amount to incitement to violence. We call on Prime Minister Netanyahu and other senior Israeli officials to publicly and clearly reject and disavow these comments. In Iran, more than 100 girls have been admitted to hospital with symptoms of poisoning after another spate of suspected gas attacks on girls' schools there. The BBC's Faranak Amadi has the latest. Today was the day terror came to parents across Iran. BBC Persian verified a number of videos showing parents rushing to schools to find their children as ambulances pulled up outside. In nearly every video, a parent or a child said they had been poisoned. The capital city Tehran saw a number of schools targeted, but the cities of Kermanshah and Ardabil in western Iran were also attacked. One parent living in a suburb of Tehran told me their daughter was at a school where an attack took place on Tuesday and they had no trust in authorities to find the suspects. The news from RTHK. Welcome back to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. I'm Andrew Work. We have our famous Your Money feature coming up with Carolyn Wright and then a view from Taiwan with Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at the Safe Pro Group, live from Taipei. But first in the news, uh, locally a catering industry representative says many workers in the trade are keeping their masks on. Howie Wong from the Federation of Restaurants and Related Trades also says the end of the mask mandate in Hong Kong won't have a strong positive impact on business. He spoke to RTHK's Lung Pak Hay. Uh, well, I think it, it really differs on the, the different type of uh, areas they are working in. So mostly, we, we still see a lot of the uh, restaurant workers still wearing masks, especially uh, waiters or people that are working in, in the kitchen. Um, but uh, because you know there is still um, um, you know in, in terms of hygiene, uh, and also they you know maybe are, are used to wearing masks already. So, uh, and it's also a good way to you know let uh, customers feel more safe inside the restaurant as well. Okay, so as you say, that is meant to make customers feel safe. So, do they have like a positive attitude or feedback to the the catering workers continue to wear masks? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, in, in the majority of the workers, they, they don't mind to keep wearing the mask because, uh, in a way, um, it, it's also to protect themselves as well. Um, you know, even though um, uh, there's no, you know, uh, official need to wear the mask anymore, um, but you still see many people on the streets uh, or even, you know, in subways uh, still wearing masks, even though, you know, it's not mandatory. So, you know, it, it's, it's kind of uh, become part of our lifestyle. Okay, so now the mask mandate has been lifted. Do you expect like there is a rebound in business for the catering industry? Um, well, <clears throat> honestly, I, I don't think this um, ha- the mask mandate has a very large impact to the to the amount of business for the industry because <clears throat> everyone um, uh, will still come out to eat, uh, you know, since the opening uh, reopening of Hong Kong. Um, but, you know, I, I think it, it gives everyone um, a sense of confidence coming out and or a sense of happiness. And in a way, uh, this will give, um, you know, a, a boost to the industry just so that, you know, people, customers uh, actually, you know, feel um, more positive coming out. And, you know, this, this should bring, you know, a, a slight increase in business. But we don't 
think it will be you know a, a major increase. So the major increase we see will hopefully be from uh, inbound travelers from overseas. So you're saying that the lifting of the mask mandate is it effective in like bringing more tourists to like bring more revenue to the catering industry? Um, oh, definitely. Yes. Um, you know, actually, we we talk with a lot of different um, uh, people around the world, and you know, one thing they they do complain about uh, before is we is you know having to wear masks in Hong Kong, um, and you know. It, you know, originally, you know, over the last uh, year or so, the world has been opening up, and um, a lot of countries already have, you know, uh, you know, terminated their own mask mandates. So, you know, the the whole world is already used to not wearing masks, and you know, to hear that Hong Kong now you don't have to wear masks, and also that uh, you know the quarantine, there's no quarantine issues and so forth, it will bring a lot more. Uh, positive influence, you know, to overseas passengers to come to Hong Kong. All right, here on Money Talk, uh, we've got a new segment that we're uh, as part of our new format, and it is all about your money. So it's called Your Money. Today, our intrepid producer, Carolyn Wright, tracked down financial advisor Kylie Chan to get the straight dope on the importance of financial health. Good morning. Today, I'm taking a look at how important financial health is to your mental health. I'm joined by Kylie Chan, who is a financial healing advocate and a financial advisor. She has her own personal story to tell about how she ended up being a financial healing advocate. Kylie, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much, Carolyn. And tell us a little bit about financial healing. Sure, sure. Well, uh, my journey uh, to financial healing uh, and what I'm doing now with, uh, uh, you know, my friends and clients stems from my own financial anxiety that I suffered, you know, starting when I was 30. Um, I mean, what I could tell you today, financial anxiety is real. In fact, um, a manual life study has shown that 81% of people in Hong Kong suffer uh, uh, or worry about their financial future. And uh, 57% worry that they're not confident that they will have enough money uh, in the future to retire comfortably. So I think um, people in Hong Kong sometimes are so stressed and traumatized by the financial situation that they're in that they procrastinate and they bury their head in the sand and, you know, they... They, they they learn to save a little, but, you know, they just hold on to it uh, without realizing that uh, money really uh, loses its value over time through inflation and uh, things like that. But also we hide behind a social norm of not, you know, thinking that's not appropriate to talk about money with one another. Uh, there's a lot of stigma around it. There's class anxiety and things like that. So I think... I should start about uh, start to tell you about my journey from the very beginning. Yeah, let's um, do that. Yeah. So this year I turned 43. Mm -hmm. And so I've been working in the corporate world for 20 years. I've been in marketing, um, mostly for large MNCs uh, for various industries. I've worked in roles that paid very little, uh, but I, I've also had roles that pay quite well. Okay. Um, However, I think because I was never in finance, I always felt that um, I was behind in um, in terms of making and saving money. Wow! I always felt, yeah, like if you're not in finance in Hong Kong, you always feel like, you know, 
what do I do? Like at most, I think at most, I was once, you know, I joined the buying stocks right. bandwagon, yeah. as everyone yeah. does oh, yeah. in Hong Kong, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. right? <laughs> so if you have a little bit of savings, you go buy stocks and you feel like, you know, I'm, You're I, in. I, I, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I, I'm doing something with my money. Uh, but in fact, um, I lost a lot of money in the stock market. <gasps> oh, no. As, you know, a lot of people. As happens. As it happens, right? Mm. Yeah, but I don't know. A lot of Hong Kong people do love the stock market. And um, I could tell you right now, I've kept a lot of stocks from the past, but I'm no, I mean, I no longer really participate, I would say. Okay. Um, not to say that uh, one shouldn't participate uh, in, in various forms of investing, but uh, in terms of uh, the sort of healing that I share with my, my clients and friends, um, I really stick to the fundamentals. But basically, yeah, I, I, you know, by the time I was 30, I had, you know, I started uh, suffering from a growing anxiety. It was just a general I think a breakdown due to stress of life and work. Um, you know, I found myself having trouble sleeping, mm-hmm. um, being always irritable, and just generally worrying about the future, right? Um, I started taking, uh, as many people did at the time, as this a trend, I started taking a lot of these self-care spiritual healing classes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like singing bowl, meditation, um, uh, uh, one of my favorite was energy tuning. You know, I, 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 I met with my feng shui master <laughs> regularly and, and things like that, you know, eat, pray, love sort of deal. And, and did that work? Um, you know, I, I thought it worked. It, it worked, uh, at a certain level. You know, I felt I was healed. You know, I traveled to, you know, even, I, I even traveled to like, uh, temples in in Bhutan, Cambodia. I, f- I felt like a spiritual side of me kind of healed, and I thought, okay, you know, I fixed myself. But, and then I started notice I still had that nagging anxiety. What was what was that coming from? And and um, you know, at that point, I still wasn't able to you know put uh, fi- um, uh, mental health. Uh, connecting to my financial health. You I didn't see a link between yeah, the two. I, 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 I didn't see the epiphany then. The epiphany, I think, came after the fact. Um, just before I turned 40, um, I met with a financial advisor and, she, you know, she was just a distant friend. Um, I happened to be on a hike with her. Right. And <laughs> I think I was kind of loitering in the back of the group because uh, I was very unfit at the time. And she was, you know, we got talking about, you know, uh, your your health and, and issues of that nature. And she just mentioned about medical, uh, uh, medical insurance. And I right. said, Oh, you know, I'm closing into 40. This is something I should look at. And so I had a meeting with her. But that year, I actually brought, bought, actually um, uh, committed not just to a medical plan. I committed to three plans. It was a medical plan. It was a tax deducting annuity plan, and it was an investment linked uh, retirement insurance. Okay, lots of sensible choices yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, she explained the fundamentals, and you know, it 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 just, <clears throat> it just suddenly happened. I said, oh wow, okay. 
you know, one month on, I started to feel, you know, I feel cured. Like my anxiety left. Seriously, I just suddenly, it, it came clear to me. And the, the amazing thing was, um, you know, I didn't feel my lifestyle change. You know, I... You know, like a lot of people in Hong Kong, you know, we try to save what we can, but, you know, in between splurges and like going to a nicer restaurant um, and, and, and paying rent or mortgage and whatnot. So um, I don't think my lifestyle changed. What changed was that I had uh, clarity, a bit more clarity. Um, I like to say I did a bit more money meditation. I love knowing, it. Knowing, knowing where your money uh, is going. So at the beginning of the month, I have some really good money tools, which allots it into certain um, uh, 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 money-making tools. Right. Um, and then I just spend. I, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel the stigma. I don't feel like... I don't know when I'm going to retire. You know, right. I You've spend got all of your plans made, and exactly. all of that money is kept to one side, and everything yes. else is for you to enjoy. Yes. Whereas before, even as I was spending money buying that bag I wanted, I felt guilty. I felt like I was not doing well by my family, or but for myself, or for my future self. Um, so, yeah, that 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 is. Uh, that, that that's essentially my journey. And today, um, I aim to help other professionals uh, bring attention to financial planning uh, the same way I've helped myself. Wow, I think that's an amazing journey that you've been on. And I love that it's kind of come full circle, that you're yeah. now the one who's, you know, you spoke to a financial advisor, yeah. and now you are the financial advisor yeah. who are helping more people come and understand where their anxieties are coming from and hopefully allaying those fears. Yeah, because I completely saw that, um, you know, I grew up in Hong Kong, though I went to an international school. We never really got like financial literacy or financial mm -hmm. education. And, you know, I see a lot of my friends. Of course, a lot of my friends are in finance, but I have a lot of friends who aren't. Yeah. Uh, but they are, you know, you know, mid-career professionals, college-educated, um, titans in their field, and yet they tell me they have been doing nothing with their money. They're just saving it, and they're so proud that they're saving, <laughs> and da da da, da. And then, um, but they forget that, you know, even though they're making a lot of money now, what um, do they have clarity in the sort of plans, in sort of the lifestyle they want to um, have in the future and when they actually want uh, to retire? Or not just want, but when can they retire? Thank you so much, Kylie Chan, for speaking to me today. It's been wonderful to hear your story and I hope to be able to speak to you again soon. That's Kylie Chan, financial healing advocate and now a financial advisor. <laughs> You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. Hey, it's uh, Money Talk. Uh, I'm Andrew Maskless Work and talking Money Talk, we now welcome the man from Uncle. No, it's Uncle Ross. Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safe Pro Group, coming at us live from Taipei. Ni hao, Ross. Good morning. 
Good morning, maskless Andrew. <laughs> hey, yeah, I know you guys in the other parts of the world probably think we're a little, uh, little late to the party on that one, but you know we're t- we're taking what we can and being grateful for. Well, it. yeah, the truth is, even here in Taiwan, the indoor mask ma- mask mandate was only recently eliminated. So, uh, you know, Hong Kong and Taiwan still have some things in common. And and I mean, do they have in common that even though the ban is lifted, are people still wearing their masks in Taiwan? Yeah, that's a a great question because the outdoor mask mandate was actually eliminated towards the end of last year. Mm -hmm. And an enormous number of people, a very high percentage of people outside as you walk around are still wearing masks outside. So to answer your question with regard to the lifting of the indoor mask mandate uh, uh, very recently, uh, yeah, people are still wearing masks. Uh, I'm definitely the minority, whether outside or inside, uh, without a mask. Or even, for example, in in the gym, uh, where there has not been a mask mandate for for an extended period of time. And that one was one of the exceptions to the general indoor mask mandate. But even in the gym, people are generally still wearing masks. Wow. So all the all the restrictions are lifted, but people are still wearing them. Sounds very much like Japan. Uh, similar situation. I mean, I'm asking because, I mean, tourists uh, are going to be heading to Taiwan. The numbers haven't been great the last couple of years, of course. But, but uh, you know, Taiwan seems to be following a little bit the, uh, the Hong Kong thing. Hong Kong, they're buying tickets for people to come to Hong Kong. But Taiwan is giving away cash, 5,000 new Taiwan dollars to 500,000 tourists and 20,000 uh, Taiwan bucks to 90,000 tour groups. Um, what do you think? Is this is this going to have an impact? How does it work? And then is it going to have an impact? Uh, the plan is to put it on some kind of stored value card. Uh, so five thousand Taiwan dollars. It's about one hundred and sixty U.S. dollars. Uh, I think the, the, the details are still being worked out. The, the implementation. I, I would guess it'll be a bit uh, uh, sloppy at the outset until the, the various. Uh, stakeholders figure out exactly the best way to do it, whether that's government agencies here or, or tourists, uh, airlines, uh, hotels. However it's going to work in practice, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be in the first group that, that avails itself. I, I would reckon that maybe people wait and see for a few weeks and see how the implementation is going. But you know, for Hong Kong travelers who, who often uh, come to, at least pre-COVID, would come, for example, just to Taipei, for a weekend of, say, shopping, eating, uh, it's nice to have another uh, 160 U.S. dollars. So uh, I would encourage uh, Hong Kong tourists who are, who are considering a, a weekend away to, to think of Taipei. I mean, I guess I guess 160 bucks over a weekend. Yeah, I mean, is, is it going to make that much of a difference? Are the hotel groups uh, applauding this? Are they saying it's not enough? I mean, how is the industry reacting? Are they, are they thinking it's going to move uh, the needle? Industry... Industry definitely says not enough, and, and the, the big challenge there is whether or not tourists from the mainland are going to come back to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So Taiwan government is not very keen on that uh, for obvious political reasons, uh, but, but the fact remains that the tourists from the mainland were the big spenders for the Taiwan tourist market, uh, say, over the past 10, 10 plus years, ever since uh, that opened up both to individual travelers and tour groups. So when the government here in Taiwan talks about other markets, such as Southeast Asia or Korea and Japan, what often happens is, and we could see that, I saw this yesterday, just walking around parts of Taipei that are very uh, touristy, 
uh, Taiwan attracts a lot of young travelers, mm. uh, backpackers. Uh, you see uh, friends, uh, young people from Korea, Japan coming here for a few days. Because Taiwan, for them, is, is relatively affordable. There, mm. There's a wide option of, of, of affordable uh, uh, accommodations, for example. They don't have to eat five-star food. They could eat street food. Uh, but but uh, they, they don't do a lot of daily spend. So it's going to keep coming that back to that issue that the, the stakeholders in the industry, whether it's hotels or tourist sites and others, uh, ultimately they want the mainland tourists to come back in large numbers. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. So I, I think six months from now, a year from now, if we have the same conversation, we're going to hear that. You know, I'll be saying that the tourist industry stakeholders are still disappointed with the post-COVID inbound tourist flows. Oh, and I mean, uh, my, my old... Uh hunting grounds Kaohsiung in the south they just opened up a new cruise ship terminal you're thinking that that might not be put to max capacity immediately it might take a little while for the tourists to come back and ramp yeah, up yeah the issue the issue with with regional cruises uh that stop in several ports around the region is they often uh might only do a day stop in tai- taiwan or one night uh so people will go off the boat and whether the boat uh port does a port call in the north at jiwong or in the south at Kaohsiung. Uh, but the, those visitors tend not to stay here very long. So again, compared to the mainland tour groups that would come to Taiwan for, for say, 10 days and travel all over the island and, and daily spend of around 175 to $200 per, per visitor, uh, even the, cru- the cruise industry doesn't uh, really supply that. Hmm. So tourism is one part of the industry. Of course, Taiwan, major exporter. Uh, the industry's perception of what's happening in the rest of the world, I think, influences you know their outlook. And uh, lately, they haven't been so uh, optimistic. What What's the take on on Taiwan's status for exports? Yeah, I hate, hate to be a downer this morning, but uh, PwC here in Taiwan recently uh, issued a survey about Taiwan business leaders' outlook for 2023, a, a global outlook, and and. 77 percent, it's just an extraordinary high number of the business leaders surveyed, uh, they, they expect a global recession in 2023. And as you said, uh, Taiwan is so export-focused. So a, a survey of, of whether SME or larger business leaders here in Taiwan about their view on the I mean, that tells you. It really informs you about what their com or the nature of their conversations with their customers, and, and these are these are manufacturing people, right? This is not those are not services economy people. Right? Mm-hmm. These are people who make stuff and sell it worldwide, whether it's in the traditional and in, traditional industry, manufacture goods or, or tech, uh, and. It's clear the feedback they're getting from their customers is we might not be buying as much in 2023. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, the you know we were talking the earlier part of the show about the production manufacturers indices results from a number of countries, uh, especially China is looking really good. Although we talked about the base effect, Uh, PMIs in Thailand, Vietnam, and other countries were climbing, but Taiwan it's coming up. It's still below 50 percent. I mean, uh, the National Development Council's uh, you know in the notes you helpfully sent me. Flashing a blue light for the third straight month, not good, but what's, yeah, what's, a, Taiwan, what's a blue light? Taiwan uh, has a government agency called the National Development Council, and, and they, they publish a composite index and then, uh, to make it understandable for, for, for the public. Uh, it's, it's assigned a color. So a blue light is actually not the one you want. So the composite of indices that, that uh, form this 
uh, color determination is flashing blue. That's at the low end. Uh, hasn't been blue for quite a long time. Uh, it, it's not a good sign. But but that is consistent with with the uh, uh, survey of business leaders that we were discussing a few minutes ago. That uh, that outlook, uh, at least from a Taiwan perspective, and for exports, is is just not good. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, you know we all want the best for Taiwan, so hopefully things will pick up. Uh, Ross Feingold, uh, quick one before we go. Interest rates. I mean, central bank. What, how are they going to play into this? How do they see inflation? Yeah, uh, economists do expect Taiwan Central Bank to, to raise rates again by another uh, 12.5 basis points. Uh, they, inflation, like many places, inflation is a serious problem. There's been a lot of attention uh, here recently about the price of eggs and also a shortage of eggs. It, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that really angers consumers. And uh, there is an election in Taiwan next January, so you can imagine how government officials are terrified of, of angry consumers uh, who can't fight eggs or the price of eggs have been going up. And residential housing costs uh, have, have continued uh, to be high. Uh, rental prices are quite high. So uh, you, what could you do to, to combat that? You raise interest rates. You're going to make omelets. you got to break a few eggs, but you got to be able to buy them first. This is the always dependable Ross Feingold, Business Development Director from the SafePro Group. All right, we're going to be wrapping up here. Quick updates from the Tesla Investors uh, program. What is going on there? They've announced they are going to build the plant in Mexico. They are going to build their next generation platform vehicles, but they have not revealed a vehicle. And people are a little bit less than impressed. Uh, Tesla shares down 5.5% in off-hour trading. Looking around the region, Nikkei, Kospi, ASX, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all trending upwards at the moment. Tomorrow's show, James Ross with Andrew Ferris of Ignosis uh, Advisory and Hao Tso of GTJAI. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Janice Wong and Danny Giddings.